0: What's up, everybody? Welcome to Show Me the Meaning Wisecracks Movie Podcast.
1: Show Me the Meaning!
0: Oh, Hell wow. yeah. That was, I feel like, did you hurt something there, Ryan? I that just, just felt like you were straining your voice a little bit. Okay, cool. <laughs> well, my name is Jared, and today I'm joined by the Show Me the Meaning crew. We got Ryan.
1: Hey, film fans.
0: And Austin. What up? So we got the classic three today, guys, and today we're talking about Scott Pilgrim vs. the World, the 2010 film directed by Edgar Wright, written by Edgar Wright and Michael Bacall, and starring Michael Cera and Mary Elizabeth Winstead. As always, let's go around and get some first impressions. What was it like the first time you watched this movie and what's like revisiting it? Let's start with Austin.
2: Oh, cool. So this is one of those rare films that grew on me. Like, I didn't get it, I think, the first time I watched it. And now I'm absolutely in love with this film. Um, I'm not really... Actually, we were just talking about this before we were recording. I'm not really a video game guy anymore. I played a lot when I was in my younger stoner years. But it was mostly like Madden football and a lot of the NBA 2K games and stuff like that, right? The sports games and then the Halos and uh, stuff. But I never got hardcore into gaming culture. I don't know shit about graphic novels. That's just not my world. So this, when I first watched it, it kind of didn't wash over me like it does now. But I've seen it probably... Half a dozen times in the last two years. And every time I watch it, I fucking love it. It's just, it's so fresh. The pacing is, um, it's unrelenting, except there's one bit of lull that I have when the vegan police uh, boyfriend, that one kind of <laughs> doesn't do it for me. But everything else, um, I love all of the 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 exes. I love the battles. Um, I love the pacing. Edgar writes the best editor for my money in the public cinema world and the public Hollywood uh, director world. Uh, I fucking love this movie. I think it's fantastic. And I actually think, I struggled because I was like is there some philosophical content that I can really bite into? And I actually think there is. So I am excited to kind of talk about this.
0: I'm glad you said that because it's rare but it happens when we choose a movie, I get excited, I watch the movie and then I panic because I'm like, wait a second (laughs) what do I talk about? (laughs) Uh, And that kind of happened here but I was able to come up with something. But Austin, did you never play any eight bit video games? You only entered in the like three D Madden NFL era.
2: No, no. I mean, I played, uh, I played Atari and I played um, Nintendo. Um, but for me, it was all very, you know, it was, it, it was just recreation. I, I wasn't like a gamer, you know, like I didn't get into mm-hmm. gaming culture. So it was, I played Tecmo Super Bowl on Nintendo, and I played Contra. And I played kind of like the fun, popular games, but I never got into the culture. So I think that's the difference. Yeah.
0: So you get it, like when Scott Pilgrim is flashing red you get the oh yeah
2: that means he's weak you get it okay cool oh yeah 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 and like the p bar and everything like that and yeah like like that stuff i get uh and like the little like the the electronic sound effects like all of those things are still nostalgic for me it's just more that like i know people listening that are really into gaming culture probably invest in this film at a at a level that is even more than i do i ve- i feel, i view this as just like a really interesting cinematic experience more than anything whereas I think some people have that extra layer that probably make them enjoy this film or or participate in this film that in in a way that I just don't so
1: gotcha all right Ryan what about you um yeah I, I can't i come from it kind of kind of from the same uh, way as austin that i uh uh the first this movie grows on me more than other movies and i don't watch that many movies more than once but mm. this movie i have seen several times it's a fun movie to just put on you can watch start it at any moment and there's always fun stuff to watch so it's not like you have to start from the beginning and yeah it's just a stylistic tour de force of weird spastic filmmaking i mean edgar wright really has honed all his chops up to this point and you know after what is this his third or fourth movie and it's well i guess he made space too but uh but yeah he's he's amazing and honestly uh someone who we haven't mentioned yet michael Sarah. i I can't imagine anyone else Mm -hmm. pulling pulling off this strange but subtle of a character with (laughs) it's a very weird humor going balance going on in this movie that that I don't think I fully got the first time I saw it because it truly is just a onslaught of total sensory overload the first time you see it that that I don't think you can really it's hard to absorb when you're watching it the first time but yeah once you kind of get what it's going for and once you've seen it uh, 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 and you know the characters; it's way, it's super fun to watch and rewatch. And yeah, I really love this movie. So, uh, and but I also was like, man, what the hell is Jerry going to bring up to talk about? What is it oh, shit. <laughs> when we have this podcast? So uh, no pressure, Jerry.
0: Yeah. yeah, no pressure. Right. Yeah. Speaking of Michael, Sarah, I agree that he's great in this role. But we should also mention that this movie was a box office catastrophe. Remember when it came out in 2010, it like halved the expectations that they had at the box office, which was super weird because everybody you saw it really liked it, and I think that box office return was kind of the end of Michael Sarah's career as a leading man. I mean, what has he done since then as a leading role?
1: Yeah, this movie was a flop. Cost sixty million to make, made forty five million or so.
2: Um, Yeah, because didn't he did that one where he? That, that when he has like his doppelganger right and that one didn't do that's well Jesse either
1: eisenberg you're
0: talking about the double no or no no else?
2: The, the michael Sarah one where he has like a a bad guy that wears like a mustache that's like his doppelganger i don't know if he because oh,
0: okay I,
2: I never i god i can't even remember what it's called right now i didn't I, I mean i saw like clips of it i saw bits of it and but that kind of flopped as well um
1: Oh, I know who you're talking about the one he made with that Spanish filmmaker. Uh, he made a bunch of weird movies with that one guy. Oh no, that's Sebastian. the other one
2: that where they where they do the Sebastian Silva. Is that his name? Yeah,
1: that's what where, I'm they the, about, yeah. where they do the
2: where they do the mescaline or the the cactus one. Magic, 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 and Crystal and then, Fairy. Those are the yeah, two. Yeah.
1: Um, Crystal anyway, Fairy's weird. Really yeah, good. no, I agree. I, I don't think there is anything, <laughs> but uh, that he's been in Sausage Party. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, he was in,
0: uh, what is it, This is the End, as Michael Sarah, as kind of a joke. But anyway, um, I have been wrestling with this movie for the last 24 hours. I watched it yesterday, and I had this very pure memory in my head about how much I loved this movie. And I got to be honest, yesterday I watched it, and I was really bored, and I'm, like, hating myself for Mm. it. I'm like, no, this movie is awesome. And maybe... I mean, I'm much more into the whole like it depends on the circumstance in which you watch the movie. I'm way more into that than Ryan is. And I'm hoping it was just that. But I I mean look, I love the visual comedy in this. Edgar Wright, master. I love Kieran Culkin in this. He yeah. is so oh, funny. So I love good. the overall tone of the movie. Mm. I love the visuals. I love the nostalgic. Ellen 8-bit Wong video is game amazing game as knives. As knives, knives is great. Yes, everyone gives killer performances in this movie. One of my favorite performances is the guy who plays—is it Michael Patel, Matthew Patel, the yes. first of the the first <laughs> of the evil exes? He is so funny the way he moves. I don't know who that guy is, but he was—I thought he was the best ex boyfriend, and he came in first. But and once again, I'm filled with self-loathing for bringing this up. But the thing that. I couldn't get over is that Scott has plot armor and he doesn't need to improve to defeat the X's. He <laughs> outsmarts them, but it's really more of a referendum on the particular X's faults. Scott is basically invincible. There are, he can withstand anything and there's no suspense to any of the battles. It just becomes pure spectacle and I'm just like watching this and I just don't care as much as I want to care. And I once again, I'm like, "Oh yeah, bringing in like bullshit joseph campbell aristotle bullshit you know this is obviously a very modern film it doesn't need to conform to all these heroes journey type shit and i get it i'm just as disappointed in me as the rest of you no i i
1: I I get i I I honestly understand say it's boring because my first time i saw that movie i i had a similar thinking like like i know he's just gonna kick these this next person's ass like but the the Upon rewatching it, uh, 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 I did, it's way more about the relationships, the high school slash college, you know, soap opera part. And then there's kind of like this anime action movie happening in the background, which I think is kind of a cool way to make a movie. But yeah, you're right. It is jarring when you see it. But I I like that that's kind of like this, the, the B plot almost. And it's way more about his love triangle. You know?
0: Yeah, but the conflict is mostly him defeating the exes and his relationship with Ramona. There's never anything that he has to do to win her over other than defeat the seven evil exes. Basically, the conflict is he feels shitty for not breaking up with knives and eventually he has to come clean to her and then he has to pursue Ramona by defeating the evil exes meanwhile kind of learning about her baggage but I guess other than the evil exes like not a lot happens there's not a lot of dynamism in the relationship I don't know I don't I really don't want to shit on this movie I'm kind of like trying to bite my own tongue here because it's awesome I have a very I still am hanging on to that pure movie going experience when i saw it the first time and fell in love and i'm hoping that one day i can recapture that but i gotta keep it real i was just kind of bored yesterday when watching this
1: it's about the little moments in the journey jared you know when you when you say lesbians instead of love you know when you're professing your love <laughs> to your crush it's about the, the little high school things slash call i keep calling it a high school movie it's a college movie more so early 20s kind of thing but knives is a, a high school yeah one. but yeah i don't know i i can i
2: see what you're saying i mean there's there's definite, yeah, there's definitely a level of superficiality here Yeah. that – I mean, we haven't done the, the, the recap yet, but I mean – so I don't know how far we want to get into this. But there is a level of superficiality here, but I think that kind of – I can kind of forgive it for that because of some stylistic things. And there's this really interesting tension between content and form that is what most intrigues me. Now, I do find it to be – at one level, I, I find it to be kind of shallow because of that superficial treatment of – you know, the sort of, like, typical narrative beats that it hits. But nevertheless, I still think there's something really interesting about this film, something unique and maybe even transformative about this film. The question is, is can that uniqueness and transformativity last in project after project after project? Like, will—is this kind of it for this type of thing? Like, can he keep making films like this? Like, for me, Baby Driver loses a lot of steam. Um, So I'm curious to see what happens moving forward, if he can continue to produce this type of, like, flashy— relatively let's say superficial film for the next 20 30 years
0: (laughs) yeah i actually have not seen baby driver but i definitely want to see it all right so let's do that recap so we can get into what austin's talking about so sore after getting dumped by a rock star named envy 22 year old scott pilgrim starts dating 17 year old knives chow until one night he meets ramona flowers the girl of his literal dreams but in order to woo her he must defeat her seven evil exes so, Scott breaks up with Knives and is soon forced into an awkward situation when Envy comes back to town and asks Scott's band Sex Babom to open for her. Meanwhile, Knives plans to get back at Scott by seducing his bandmate. All the while, Scott defeats Ramona's exes one by one until only one remains, legendary indie music producer Gideon. Citing how she can't get over him, Ramona breaks up with Scott and gets back with Gideon. To add insult to injury, Gideon signs Sex to a three-album deal without Scott. Scott challenges Gideon to a final fight and gets stabbed. In a vision of the afterlife, Ramona reveals that Gideon has implanted a chip in her brain. Using an extra life, Scott tries again and fights Gideon not for Ramona but for himself and Ramona's ship short circuits. Scott then takes responsibility for cheating on Knives and together Knives, Ramona, and Scott defeat Gideon. Ramona is about to leave Scott forever when Knives convinces him to pursue her so Scott asks her do you want to try again? End of movie.
3: Uh, hey Jared, real quick. Um,
1: yeah, uh, someone named Shy Guys in the chat on the live stream said uh, it's about growing up after you already grew up. I thought that was kind of interesting.
0: Like taking responsibility for being a shitty person as an adult.
1: Yeah, I mean he's kind of a man child. He's you know he's supposed to have kind of grown up, but he's still you know stuck back dating a high schooler and blah 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 blah, and uh, that's what Shy Guys. Interpretation of the theme is yeah.
0: Hmm. I don't want to challenge. I, mean, that. I, think, I, don't, I don't want to challenge that too much because I think that even if I were to say, well, how exactly does he change? How did the does the conflict the seven X's actually make him grow more? I just think it's be it's missing the point. So I don't want to go down that path. But okay. he's probably right.
2: I think. I think one of the problems is is that it's difficult to grasp anything solid because Edgar Wright always gives you something serious, and then takes it away with a joke. And part of this is British humor, right? Very self-deprecating, very sort of, there's irony, um, there's a willingness to just kind of like play with themes and be silly, whereas American audiences, we're like, we want sentimentality. So, you know, the bit with Ramona at the end, when we find out that she's got a chip in her brain, we don't realize that, you know, when she's like, he just, he has some control over me, and we're thinking, oh my god, like, She really just – she really cares about him and here's the dramatic tension and does he really love her and is he going to go fight for her? But then it's like, oh, no, 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 no really. Like he has control over me because there's a fucking chip in my brain. So again, it's like it's like there's this seriousness and then it's taken away and a seriousness and then it's taken away. And so it's really hard I think to kind of grasp anything and I think a lot of times American audiences were so conditioned to needing like the sentimental underpinning that love is real and we will fight for it. That's why the ending was reshot. Like, you know the original ending, he ends up with knives, and then test audiences didn't like it.
0: Well, that's what happens in the graphic novel, too.
2: Whoa. He ends up with knives. Or at least it hints
0: that he will end up with knives.
2: Right, right. But test audiences didn't like that, so they made it so that he ends up with Ramona. Because everyone loves the manic pixie dream girl, and so we fetishize that, you know? Um, and and maybe there's some discomfort, too, because of the age Uh, discrepancy and maybe the power dynamic between Knives and Scott but um, it's just really strange to kind of I I think kind of wrestle with that difficulty and I think that makes the film really difficult to grab onto uh, as like a solid item if that makes any sense
0: Uh, yeah I mean let's talk more about this whole is it all style or is there substance to the style and I guess we can just talk about this I don't know do you want to talk specifically about the video game aesthetic or just Because I think that's definitely one very predominant thing that's happening here.
2: Yeah, absolutely.
0: All right, so let me just rattle off. Tell me what you think of this. I was trying to ask myself, okay, so we see the video game. There's the one life. There's all the different meters, whether it's a health bar or the P bar or all these things. (laughs) You know, people literally drop coins when you defeat them. Every time he does something that uh, shows that he has increased self-confidence, we see plus certain amount of points. So, it's all over this movie, and I was wondering, other than the fact that the graphic novel was written like this, does it serve any other function in the story? And here's what I came up with. So, video games usually function as a normal, everyday schmo getting to do amazing things. So if I'm playing a ninja game, I get to be a ninja, and trust me, there's no way in hell I could ever do anything a ninja could do. So in that sense, so too does scrawny Michael Sarah get to fight like a badass and perhaps, depending on how you interpret it, date girls that are way out of his league. So I don't know. There's also this fan- – this another fantasy element of video games in that, like, Scott, who's a guy who at one point he just says he's, quote, between jobs – He defeats all these greater models of success, another kind of fantasy that you get to live out by taking over the agency of your avatar in video games. So he defeats a record exec, a buff, good-looking vegan, a movie star. And so that's what I was able to come up with. I'm curious if either of you guys have any other thoughts about the function of the video game aesthetic.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think you nailed it. It's a complete like a a personal fantasy and that's just to to me to me I, I one reason I like this movie is is I don't usually like when the point of view is so subjective in a movie like like if I like am I supposed to be thinking is this really happening or is this all in from his perspective like I don't usually enjoy that kind of thing but this is it like you said it doesn't matter it's just kind of They they comment on it, but they're not commenting on it. Like it's just kind of a giant pistache of of thing of pop culture references, and you don't really know what's reality. But yeah, who cares? It's it, it is like a live action anime, which is hard to achieve. The only other movie I can think of is like Speed Racer, that kind of achieves the style and also. But you also but that even that is more grounded in its own reality. Like you know that this speed racing thing is happening, but. Your well, po- it's less. Were it's gonna less
0: anime. I say it's less anime than it is video games and the aesthetic of a comic book. So we see paneling a lot, which is meant to evoke the original graphic novel. Of I mean, Scott Pilgrim. That
1: first fight is a straight up anime fight. That guy that you liked, you know, like he is, Patel. He is pretending. He is acting like an anime guy. <laughs> you yeah, know, it's, it's probably
0: around. a mix of the two. Perhaps you're right. I mean, uh, in terms. of both anime and to a large extent video games are very much a japanese tradition so there might be some overlap there
2: right yeah do you think do you think that this these stylistic things make are what contribute to its inaccessibility for popular audiences at least upon initial release and why it was a box office bomb because people were you know it, a lot of a lot of box office hype is driven by previews and by early screenings and by critics and then word of mouth so even though so many people now love this film and even though gaming culture is such a profitable and popular sector, why do you think this film fell flat? And so I'm wondering if it's this stylism that kind of comes out of nowhere. Like like the editing and the quick, the quick cuts and the really clever uh, cuts are kind of the – that's a through line in all of Wright's work. So I don't know if that's the alienating aspect. Um, I wonder if it's it's when that first fight starts that it becomes almost too unreal. Yeah. And maybe that's what turns people off. Like, do you think they're kind of like, oh.
0: I don't know. I, I think that the film's failure, at least at the box office, was entirely commercial. I think that critically people liked it then as much as they do now. I don't think that it was lack of word of mouth. I think that the movie just, the marketing didn't reach its audience. Yeah, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but from what I remember, it was always a big, Critical darling, that for some reason just nobody saw.
1: Yeah, exactly. Everyone liked it. No one went out and saw it. But yeah, I do think it. I do think it's part partly due to the marketing. uh I mean, the posters suck. Just him on, just him with the guitar, and it's red. You know, give me more for such a weird ass movie. I'm not going to just blame it on the poster, obviously. But but yeah, it had it has a very strong point of view, and I don't think it. I kind of remember people not really—at least that summer, whenever it came out. People, I, I would ask people like, "Hey, let's go see this weird movie," and people were like, "Oh yeah, that did look kind of cool, but I don't know—I just don't want to see it. I don't know something was in the air, maybe." Hmm. See, another part of me thinks that that we still
2: are—we're still stuck thinking in this older model that uh, like initial box office release numbers matter. They do too much because I know I know they do for for like for executives and things. But really in the age of like moving towards VOD and streaming services, like fewer and fewer films are going to be reliant upon the amount of box office numbers generated. And I think so many of these films are going to be redeemed where we're like, "Oh, they became a cult classic." would be I don't know that that like it was a failure when it was released, but now it was redeemed afterwards are as important of a contradiction as maybe they were. 10 15 20 years ago because now like who cares if it failed i mean the amount of money that it's going to be able to generate now the amount of cultural impact it's going to be able to have now kind of surpasses and covers over well, that. No, the
1: people that it matters to is the other filmmakers that are trying to make weird because you know like if if scott pilgrim succeeded uh, box up uh, opening day which is what the executives want then they're going to green light more of the cool stuff you know,
2: so but that's, they're going to green light it on Netflix and Amazon. Well, yeah, but and now, now Apple's here we are. New this, streaming service. Well, yeah, but, and,
1: but this is this movie came out in 2010. Is all I'm saying. So yeah, you're right. This isn't a yeah, model yeah. of what we're thinking. Now it's just about yeah, how many eyeballs can you get to our streaming service with your <laughs> right. with your shit, which is a different formula. Which right. uh, which we are getting more weird stuff because of it, which I think is cool. Precisely. Um, but I but also yes. a thing you said earlier, real quick to wrap this point up is just. About it being clever, I think this movie. If there's any, if I could say one downside is that it's too clever for its own good. Like for a commercial audience, is you know, it's not like slapstick, like a Jim Carrey movie. It's not like, I don't know, it's it's not a Transformers movie. It's got a lot. It's like a whole lot of things you got to think about while also with a lot of shit coming at your face. So uh yeah,
0: it's it's tough because a lot of times we might use clever in a little bit of a pejorative term, but. This movie is legitimately smart in the way that it dramatizes comedy. It's just hits you over the head with it like three times a second. And it can get a little overwhelming, but that's not to detract from the fact that everything is so well thought out and everything, all those radical stylistic elements, oftentimes when it's jokes, work in service to the comedy. And hats off to him for that. But... Once again, I don't know how much of that people can really consume without being exhausted or just not getting it. Or at a certain point, maybe people, I don't know. It's a film nerd. Right right now we're still, you know, because we're here
1: breaking it down like, oh man, this is so cool how we did all this stylistic stuff. But it really doesn't add up to like an amazing movie that any audience can, can access or enjoy, I feel like. It's interesting. I don't know anybody who's over the
0: age of 50 or something who has seen this movie. I'd be interested to hear if there are if there's any adults or people in that age range listening mm. right now who like this movie because everyone I know who's seen the movie is aware of the aesthetic of old video games yeah. and so I yeah, I wonder if it's just completely foreign.
2: If I can give a quick shout out to a YouTube video that I think perfectly introduces audiences who may not be as familiar with Edgar Wright. It's an Every Frame
3: a Painting. Is that what it's called?
2: Every Frame a Painting? Yeah, that video is is so good. Rest in peace uh, to that channel because it's no longer. But that video where he talks about the genius of Edgar Wright's editing style, I think will allow you to appreciate all of his films, but especially this film, even more. Because... Um, it really details what is so brilliant about using style and using form um, not just in service of the plot but as almost a separate element that itself is narratival. And so – and I think it's, it's really brilliant. So I, I wrote down these four different maybe ways of viewing the relationship between form and content. So the typical way that people think about this, when you go to film school, when you read books – It's that the style needs to serve the plot, right? That everything needs to serve the plot, and the plot is driven by the primary protagonist, and so everything has to serve the hero's journey, so to speak. If the protagonist's um, journey isn't being pushed forward in a scene, if that scene doesn't serve that development, if the style doesn't somehow serve that development, then you want to rethink you're structuring. That's kind of the typical way of viewing things. Um, but then there's another one that's like style for its own sake. And so a lot of arthouse films are kind of criticized because they're always like Nicholas Refn, for example, is sometimes criticized for just being consumed with style uh, as opposed to substance, which I don't think is a fair criticism. But um, those are two, right? So style serves plot or style for its own sake. And then there's kind of content for its own sake. And content, for its own sake, is where you kind of, maybe like the Dogma 95 films, where you try to strip down all the style, and it's just about story. It's just about characters. It's just about maybe people doing their thing, which itself is a stylistic choice. But nevertheless, the idea is is that supposedly it's just all about content. And then there's a fourth option, and it's that content serves style. And this is where I think Edgar Wright kind of fits in, both in this, this tension between Style serving plot, but also content serving the style. And it's that tension that I think you see displayed in this film. That that the style, the cuts, the edits, they kind of fit into this weird, frenetically paced film that is very, in my mind, very current. Very sort of like advanced capitalists, late capitalists kind of... The world of digital information where everything is fast and speed is what matters. And I think all of that kind of serves this larger framework that you get within all of Edgar Wright's films, but that kind of reached their zenith in this film. Does that make any sense?
0: It does. I like that because, yeah, one of the cornerstones of how I interpret media is, yeah, that form follows function. And I really like you mentioning the inverse of that. Um, I want to bring something up. I was reading an article that I think you might like. And I read this months ago, and unfortunately I can't remember the name of the author, so I apologize because this is not my original thought. But he was talking about how technology has perhaps usurped the way that old fucks like myself think of traditional storytelling. So he talks about Aristotle and he talks about Joseph Campbell and how there has to be conflict and that the character has to grow through that conflict, yada, yada, yada. But then he says... One day I was watching my kids play The Sims, and he's talking about this whole world of video games and how that's complicated mm. traditional storytelling. And he says, I was watching my kids play The Sims, and I asked, how do you win? What's the point? They say, well, there's, there is no ending. You can't win in The Sims. And this, like, blew his mind because he's like, well, everything I've <laughs> known about storytelling suggests that You have to work towards an end. A piece of art must have an end in order for it to have meaning and in order for it to be gratifying. And then he, I believe, if I'm remembering correctly, he came to this conclusion that storytelling today in the digital age can exist in this state where instead of beginning, middle and end, it just exists in this perpetual state of middle and Mm. And I I think you can kind of see a lot of that in this movie. In a way, this movie is almost like a series of boss fights with no real protagonist growth. In a way, it reminds me of a Bruce Lee movie, like Game of Death, where, you know, Bruce Lee in his yellow jumpsuit, where he fights one guy, he fights Chuck Norris, I believe it is, then he goes to the next level, and it's Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, and then it goes to the next level, and it's somebody else. We don't go to watch Game of Death for character or conflict or plot. We go to see the spectacle of martial arts. And I'd argue, and I think this is also what you're arguing, Austin, is that for Scott Pilgrim, we also go for the spectacle of the style. For that, the the main message more than anything is the uh, video game nostalgia, the relatability, and ultimately... And I don't want to undersell the importance of the message about relationships but obviously that's also super important
1: yeah amen yeah yeah yeah
2: yeah but i think there's something interesting too in the perpetual middle and i think this is something i was so struck with in in watching this last night so let's let's assume this framework of the perpetual middle that this author that you mentioned discusses um this film then is very episodic rather than serial and in these episodes there's actually a deepening of drama, uh, of, of drama of those typical narrative story elements. They're just very subtle. So think about the first battle when the Matthew Patel boyfriend comes in. Before he enters, um, when uh, Sex Babam are watching the other band play, there's a dramatic tension. Uh, between the lead singer of Sex Babom and how he doesn't think they're gonna be able to get out there. So conflict is established, right? He's got all this panic. How are we gonna do this? We're gonna fail. We're not gonna so stakes are being raised with regards to his desires, right? And then of course Scott is watching Ramona and Knives. And of course, his desires, he doesn't want Knives and Ramona to talk because that's gonna out him that he's kind of two timing both of them. And then of course his sister's up there and she's got her boyfriend, and then you've got Kieran. Uh, Colkin, who's flirting with her boyfriend, so there's a dramatic tension that's set up there because he's just this, you know, flirtatious with everybody kind of uh, dude. And he already has hinted earlier that he likes glasses because he mentioned something about uh, the, the gay guys at the school wear glasses and the, the boyfriend's wearing glasses. So you, we're automatically introduced to the tension there. Then Sex But Mom gets on stage. And then you have uh, Alison Pill, the drummer, who also was jealous of, you know, the little young girl Asian drummer of the previous band, who then that's reversed. Then the, the girl of the previous band is staring at her with anger. And then the lead singer is giving evils to the lead singer of Sex bomb <laughs> And then you've got Scott looking up on the balcony and it, the tension is still there. And then, of course, you've got uh, Anna Kendrick who looks over and she's upset because then her boyfriend is making out with Kieran Culkin. And so in the midst of this middle, there are 30 different... different... Different storylines that are producing each of their own typical dramatic little narratives that all find some kind of payoff, too, right? Mm. And and that I think is what's so brilliant. So all of the scenes kind of do this, but it's it's done at a way that is minute and infinitesimal rather than at like the macro level. And I think that's what's so interesting about this film is you get that, it's like it's almost a minimizing of the dramatic narrative down to like the hyper intense level of quantification, and that's why I think this this film is so interesting and why it's so the style of it is also part and parcel of the content of of the film in a very productive sense.
0: I think that was very well put
1: <laughs> 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 um, <gasps> go ahead, Ryan. yeah, I was just going to add to that 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 um. His other, to me, the perfect Edgar Wright movie, the one that actually uses editing to to tell a beginning, middle, and end story, not just a perpetual middle story, is Shaun of the Dead, Uh, his first movie, which just is like, like I can't. Yeah, imagine that movie being told in the other way. You know, it was right it, it was right, you know, he's using Darren Aronofsky's little lightning fast uh edits and then he's using Quentin Tarantino's uh uh framing and shit and uh and, and, and long takes. But but it all is servicing that story whereas his uh, every other movie besides Shaun of the Dead and Scott Pilgrim which is an enigma, I don't think honestly worked for me as much they're kind of just, they pale in comparison. They're cool, they have cool stuff in them. But to me, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, and uh, Baby Driver are all just kind of trying to be Shaun of the Dead, which is the perfect version of what Edgar Wright does. And then, yeah, like he found this weird st- way to tell a uh, a story in Scott Pilgrim that I don't think can work. I don't think you can replicate something like Scott Pilgrim very easily, or nor should you want to. Yeah.
2: mm. What did you like? You, so you didn't really love Baby Driver, Ryan?
1: I thought it was cool for what it was, but it was just kind of like like I get tired of the style, just pure yeah. style, you know. And, and and whereas, like you were saying, Jared, about about we watch Bruce Lee movies for the fighting, you know, you watch Baby Driver for the style and the driving, you know, it's just you replace fighting with driving. But 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 I, I don't think he's told a a solid story really since Shaun of the Dead.
0: You yeah, know what? I, I have think not that, seen Baby that Driver. That helps
1: me.
2: You haven't seen it yet. I mean, I, I Ryan, you actually really helped me kind of think why it didn't work for me because I don't know. I, there was so much hype, especially among my my peer group, about Baby Driver, and I went in to see it, and I kind of walked out, and I was like, you know, seven out of ten, like not bad. It, the the car scenes are great, but I think it was precisely because something within the plot elements and the relationship to the style fell flat for me and I didn't know why I mean I think Ansel Elgord, what's his name um, I think he's he's a really bright young actor um, I think the kind of idea about him having tinnitus and having to listen to music and everything being set to the soundtrack is really clever but f- something at the level of plot maybe it's just because Kevin Spacey's in it and he's been cancelled now and so um, I don't know <laughs> I don't know what it was but for some reason, I just couldn't. I couldn't get into it, and I think you're exactly right, Ryan. That that it's Shaun of the Dead that works really well as like a full large scale plot. Scott Pilgrim works well as like this hyper frenetic, like infinitesimal project of style and and substance. And then outside of that, it's really difficult to find the balance.
0: So, uh, m- building on your point, Austin, about these kind of micro narratives, I'm curious if how aware is the film of this. And I want to point to the part where we see we very briefly at the end of the movie meet Negus Scott, who's basically just Shadow Scott from like a Zelda game or something like that. So usually this would be and what I was expecting is that, okay, so now Scott Pilgrim has to defeat himself. He finally has recognized that he did Knives wrong and that he's been selfish And that he needs to have a little bit More dignity and now all Of those problems that He has come to realize Now he needs to fight them In Shadow Scott and then it just Cuts to them like chilling they're like alright Man cool we'll uh we'll we'll See you later you
2: know what I'm this saying This goes back to what I was saying though right about where Wright Sets up something serious and then He takes it away from you and makes it into a joke <laughs>
0: Yeah. But do you, you know, think
2: that he, in this one in he like particular subverts our expectations with that?
0: This one in particular is a very familiar, traditional storytelling conceit that he's fucking with. And I'm just wondering yeah. if there's like a level of self-awareness of, yes, this movie is breaking all those narrative rules that I know that I should possibly be doing to make this applicable to maybe an older audience. But fuck it. This is the digital age audience and they would appreciate the humor <laughs> rather than the dramatics.
2: I mean, I don't know if he's necessarily thinking about the audience expectations per se, but he's—I think he's definitely subverting the plot expectations that are imposed upon writers. You know, as a director, he's saying, "Oh, I know the typical narrative is that you have the culmination, the final battle that the the hero has to um, engage in with the ultimate enemy." So that he can learn about himself and transform the world, which then uh, makes it so that he can never go back to the landscape that he entered into when we were first introduced to this character. Because now the world has been changed because his view and and, and his view on the world has been changed. And so he's setting that up and he's like, okay, cool, let's do that. And then be like, oh, let's just kind of fuck with it a little bit. I think it's more that rather than him trying to make a – like that he's trying to hedge for audiences more than anything. Sure. that,
0: That makes sense. You know, I just want to make a yeah. qualification that we talked about how this movie is perhaps po- more substance in service of style. However, there are some times in the movie where I felt like the style really did enhance the substance of the movie. So, for example, when Scott breaks up with knives and the entire background goes dark and she gets small within the frame mm. and she just goes, oh, so heartbreaking. That like broke my heart, and it was definitely the the style plus her one-word answer said volumes.
1: <laughs> yeah.
2: Can you yeah, guys? Can you guys? But, think- I mean, that's precisely that's that's precisely what I was trying to get at when I'm saying there's that tension mm-hmm. with, with the relationship between style and substance because Wright uses style as a plot device, like he uses camera movements, he uses sound. He uses lighting in that instance. Um, The bit where the cameras pull back so that you're looking at at the band and you're pulled away from it and and it kind of like elongates this room. There's like an alienating, warping sense. I mean, those things, they create affect. They create feel. They, They affect the viewing audience in a way because a frame is part of the content, right? Like it's the, the canvas and the borders – I mean so in philosophy, we would call it like the, the liminality, which is like the limits, right? To think liminality is to think about those limits. Like there's something off the page that isn't presented on the page but that actually influences what's on the page. So style isn't just this empty thing that doesn't necessarily relate to. I mean it, in that, that it absolutely does, that there's an essential necessary relationship between the limits, the liminality, between the style and the content. And to really think that and to work through that is something that isn't, it isn't something that is normal in the way that we view film because we think of it as, oh, okay, so they're shooting coverage. Here's a wide shot. Here's a medium. Here's a close. Okay, shot, reverse shot. Okay, here's a two shot. You know, they're walking and then we'll cut in for a close-up and again, reverse shot. I mean, it's just very standard. But what he's doing is just something a little bit um, creative and innovative. And so for us, it kind of like shocks us. Um, You know, Ryan referred to it as sensory overload when he was first talking about it. And it does. It creates that sensory overload just because it's not something we're accustomed to.
0: Do you guys want to bring up any favorite moments or anything else before we move into the mailbag?
1: Um, Yeah, uh, a guy in the live chat brought up a guy named, let's see, what's his name? Rob Hand brought up Kung Fu Hustle. I think actually Stephen Chow is actually a really good, um, you know... Uh, a nice fine wine pairing with Edgar Wright. If you are unfamiliar with Stephen Chow, his movies like Kung Fu Hustle, Shaolin Soccer, uh, Journey to the West, those movies are super stylistic, but he knows how to, he absolutely knows how to tell a great hero's journey story, you know, using all the, the, the whole bag of tricks, like you were just saying, uh, Austin, you know, lighting, camera, mm, uh, editing, and effects. It's, he's an amazing filmmaker from China.
0: I am so glad Mm. that. I'm sorry, what was his name? Rob Hand. I'm so happy that Rob Hand brought that up because The Kung Fu Hustle is one of my favorite movies ever. Me too. I fucking love that movie. And I think probably the reason why that movie works better, at least upon multiple viewings, because I've seen that movie like 15 times, (laughs) than this movie is probably just I have a huge soft spot in my heart for uh, Kung Fu cinema, martial arts. Jackie Chan is one of my favorite auteurs of all time. So, um,. It's it's a very interesting
2: contrast,
0: and maybe we'll just have to do that for the podcast. But oh, we, we yeah. should. <laughs> um, I,
2: I mean, the last thing I would say is that uh, so there's a a philosopher theorist. He writes on like film theory too. His name's William Connolly, and he writes about how like when he first went and saw, or maybe it was actually John Malarkey. I'm confusing my two theorists now. Um, there's another film theorist named John Malarkey. But anyway, what they write about like when he, they first saw, um like these rapid-paced cut type of films, like the Bourne films, like the the Greengrass style of editing. And it was like when he first saw it, it was like too much. It was sensory overload. But then after like a decade of Pepsi advertising and music videos and jump cuts on YouTube videos and things like that, now he watches The Bourne Identity and it actually isn't jarring at all. It's It's just normalized Yeah, that's mild now. It's changed us. Yeah, and... So I actually – I write about this in, in my, my book. It's, it's, we call it like psychobiological shifts, right? Mm. There are these micro-psychobiological shifts, these tiny, tiny, tiny little shifts in the psychobiological framework that literally affect our neuronal processing for how it is that um, the neurons fire together. Because there's this famous saying back in like early, early cybernetic research, the neurons that fire together, wire together.
1: <laughs> um, nice. But so
2: basically, yeah, I love it. Um, I love it when scientists get like clever with shit like that. <laughs> um, but that basically these neurons, when they fire together, they're creating pathways, right? Um, but as those pathways are not utilized, think of it like a forest, like a path in a forest. Um, as people are walking over it, then the growth doesn't grow on it because it's being trampled on. But when people stop walking on it, what happens? The vegetation grows over it again, right? So uh, you have to continually fire those pathways in order to strengthen them. And, of course, the more people that walk down a path, for example, in the forest, the wider the path gets, right? So the stronger the neuronal wiring gets. But you can change that through these, like, stylistic, stylistic shifts, through speed and through slowdown. That's why slow cinema, like... Uh, Bella Tarr's films or I can't remember the Filipino director who makes like these nine hour films. Um, like those are really difficult for us who are so used to speed. We need images constantly flying by our faces and we need music constantly in our ears and it's very difficult to sit in silence which is why you know there's this turn towards meditation as being very, health, uh, very healthy and very important and everyone's doing yoga now because it's like they're trying to mitigate the onslaught of sensory overload but you can shift your your psycho-biological framework um, by exposing yourselves to these artistic things. And I think that's one of the things this film um, really kind of helps us to understand is how is it that our psychological and our biological frameworks themselves have been affected by art and maybe part of the reason that some people like the older 50-year-olds won't get into this movie is partly because of that, like beyond just the fact that they're not into video game culture maybe as much but that the style itself, that their brains, their literal psychobiological frameworks are just geared a little bit differently. Their neuronal frame, their neuronal pathways, they fire differently. And I think I think that's something to really consider and explore and work through. And and if you guys want William Connolly and then another guy named John Malarkey who has a book on film, those two guys kind of talk about this sort of stuff.
1: Well, regarding yeah. uh, long cinema, I, I believe Alfred Hitchcock's film uh, uh, "Quote of the length of a film should be directly related to the endurance of the human bladder," God damn it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, to more what you're saying,
3: Austin.
0: When I first started making YouTube videos, the idea of a jump cut was fucking I couldn't even imagine it. You know, I was I had that like you know pure cinephile. tendency and these days i've got youtube brain and that's a real term that alec and i throw around a lot and now it's just like i get it it's part of the cultural aesthetic of youtube there's no reason for me to you know hold up production because of a jump cut so yeah there's a there's a lot of really negative side effects to youtube brain but i'll i'll save that for another podcast
1: (laughs) to be honest i love Mm. the just a bit the the whatever you want to call it, like everyone knows Jump Cuts now, like, like, like Vine and stuff. Ha- and the, U- the YouTube brain has created a new w- way of film, I feel like, you know, it's like the Tim and Eric stuff mixed with Vine mixed, you know, everyone knows After Effects, everyone knows editing, everyone's an editor. And I, and I like the weird shit that that creates. Ryan,
0: do you remember the moment mm-hmm. when you and I realized that this was a brave new world for entertainment in that what was it during fred the movie it was during fred the movie exactly
1: (laughs) (laughs) that really was a transcendent moment in our lives
0: (laughs) yeah i was watching a movie so fred Figglehorn, the first youtube channel to reach a million subscribers for some reason ryan and i back in 2010 or something decided to watch this movie and we were blown away that something could so precisely embody the ryan aesthetic and we just looked at each other and we just knew that ryan had a future in this world well, that the, the world that was like... mature to understand ryan
1: <laughs> and just how awesome that movie was but yeah i definitely was it was so inspiring i was just like wow like like this guy made a movie and it's just like a youtube video that on crack you know it's amazing
0: um, yeah uh, maybe we'll, maybe we'll do fred the movie on the pod we really should
1: everyone needs to we see really fred should i mean i
0: I admire that film because it looks like it was made on a very low budget. Most of the movie takes place on a cul-de-sac, and that guy Lucas, his performance is so wild that he really is able to establish a pretty convincing tone, and there's something to say about the world-building of acting insane. But before I lose all credibility from the audience, let's move into the (laughs) mailbag. First, let's start out with some voicemails. If you guys want to send us your thoughts, questions, uh, analyses, you want to bitch at us, whatever, 213-534-8807 or elf gut 7 We got an email, or I'm sorry, a voicemail from Anonymous. Go Anonymous.
3: Hey, I was just listening to your episode on They Live, and I wanted to let you know that um, uh, there is a connection between the sunglasses and uh, Albert Hoffman. Like they call them Hoffman lenses in the movie. And, uh, this is a reference to the man who first synth- synthesized LSD. So, um, you know, it's kind of that Timothy Leary thing about the counterculture. So, I, I don't know. I, I was just wondering if you guys had heard this or maybe had any thoughts on it. Thanks. Bye.
0: I had not heard that.
1: Have you, had you guys heard that? Well, he's talking about Abby Hoffman, mm-hmm. but, uh, I, uh, I did not know that. That's a cool little trivia fact. John Carpenter, you sly, sneaky, LSD dog, you. <laughs> yeah. All
0: right, we got one more on They Live from a different Anonymous, I'm assuming.
3: Hey guys, love the podcast. Just listened to your episode about They Live. It had a couple quick thoughts. First of all,
0: uh, there was another short story that came out after 8 o'clock in the morning by Stephen King called The 10 O'Clock People where instead of the sunglasses, it's like a very particular amount of nicotine in your system. So that's an interesting one. The other thought I had is about a difference between They Live and The Matrix. In They Live, it's very clear there's a connection between the ulterior motives of the secret aliens and the struggles of capitalism, whereas
3: in The Matrix, it's really never made clear
0: that the machines are Influencing who succeeds and fails within the construct of the Matrix. So, like, conceivably, you could become rich, or like Cypher wanted to be a movie star. You could make that happen, and the machines probably wouldn't care one way or the other. So, I almost see the Matrix as counter revolutionary in that way.
1: Just wondered what you guys think about that. Keep up the good work. See you later.
0: Cool. So, what I would say about that is, I would agree with you if we keep the conversation just to the first Matrix. But if we include The Matrix Reloaded, there's this whole criticism. Oh, I know Ryan's like, oh, God, he's going to talk about The Matrix. Uh, (laughs) Go for it, man. But in The Matrix Reloaded and Revolutions, there's this whole very postmodern critique of systems and how um, in a very – that you could overlay onto capitalism and how systems of control basically can puppeteer you when even when you think that you are free. And it is actually quite similar (laughs) – to what's happening in They Live. Austin, you got anything mm. on that? You want me to move on? <laughs>
2: <laughs> no, I think that's... Yeah, I'm, I'm with you. I'm vibing.
0: All right, cool. Um, let's move on. Actually, let's do one more. We got a couple from They Live. This one is from Jay.
3: Hey, Waste Cracks. This is Jay from Nevada. I just listened to the They Live podcast. Really liked it. Uh, y'all talked a lot about the widespread appeal of awakening... Uh, Perhaps this criticism was inherent in what you were saying, but I'd like to hear your thoughts on the idea that at least sometimes so-called awakening is is not actually discovering the true nature of the universe, but rather fortifying a person's preconceived notion. Shattering the Mm. grand illusion doesn't sound uplifting or cathartic, at least not in the short term. True revelation is usually depicted as traumatic. According to Plato, stepping out of the cave would be terrifying. I understand it, Sartre explained that that bad faith is comforting and abandoning it requires a crisis of dread. In short, the red pill tastes like shit because experiencing actual awakening almost always requires a person to change all their beliefs and behaviors, which is difficult and uncomfortable work. What is comfortable enough to easily explain the nearly universal appeal of the red pill on both sides of the aisle is confirming received wisdom or a system of beliefs that a person already mostly believes in. Calling it an awakening would just be self-congratulatory and serve as serve to foreclose any future suggestion that they are wrong or that they should re-examine their beliefs. Just thought, and should to hear it. Thanks, thanks so much. Keep up the good work. Bye bye.
0: So I like what Jay is saying, and if I may continue our matrix metaphor, it would be as if, to Jay's point, Morpheus hands you the quote-unquote red pill. But it's actually just a, a red jelly bean and you take it and it tastes great and then you can feel like you've been awakened to the truth. But in fact if you want to take the real red pill, it's gonna hurt. I <laughs> wanna <Absolutely. laughs> both the, the, the real
2: red pill the real red pill does hurt. I mean I've I've taken it a couple of times where it felt like uh the entire fucking framework that governed my life was completely shattered See, and is... I jokingly refer to it now but I just have a disposition that somehow is kind of sunny uh with regards to the trauma that is perpetual and the anxiety that constantly haunts me maybe this is why I don't sleep well but um but <laughs> I've somehow found I I've, I've found it to be a productive anxiety and I know that that, that isn't always the case but I mean coming coming Into a radical conversion into Christianity where you then literally think that the entire world is governed by a completely different set of rules and laws and governances changes everything. And then having that world shattered is also extremely traumatic and I kind of feel like I'm still in that crisis. I mean all of my research, my interest in philosophy, my love of film is all filtered through me trying to like do risk management here because I'm confronting the fact that God is dead which is traumatic. This is, Jared, this is one of the things that you talk about, that that the the idea that God is dead, not just in the literal sense of God, but just let's say there's a death of Godding. It could be the fact that you realize that your parents are assholes or you realize that your state is an imperialist horror or you realize that uh, the things that you have clinged to, most importantly, to give you meaning are themselves shallow and superficial or contingent or whatever it is, that that's fucking terrifying. And so sometimes you need you need to figure out a healthy way to work through that and kind of just bathing in a sea of nothingness isn't always the best way to do it and that's i don't know like he mentioned sartre that's one of the things that sartre is working through is how do you productively engage with that sense of nausea later in his life he starts working more productively towards that than he does in his early life but that's it's not easy man and it's not necessarily fun but it can be productive and it can be powerful
0: this is why I wish you didn't fuck up the time when we did the They Live podcast.
2: <laughs>
0: I Yo, no, don't oh, Whatever, some one of, us, one of us one of us fucked up the we're time. Gonna, we're going We're going to fight now. <laughs>
2: no, no, no. No, I know. I I'm bummed too cuz I um I it would have been great to chat about this further.
0: I will say that I think that Jay's criticism is apt and that to 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 what you're saying, yes, when you do have a legitimate awakening and realizing that whatever, the society that you live in is an imperialist nightmare or that uh, you know the religion that you've been indoctrinated into is a very harmful thing for society, whatever it is, I agree. It makes sense that if you really have a truly introspective paradigm shift, it's probably going to hurt. I will say perhaps then is more this idea that the idea of the red pill or the idea of being awakened to something has been basically just made trendy and watered down to the point where it's basically just people popping jelly beans and saying that they now understand the world. Anyhow.
2: Yeah. I mean, if I can give a little anecdote, I was at a cafe the other day talking with a buddy and uh, he's a, a local academic and scholar. And so we were chatting about stuff and there was a dude at a table next to us who heard, my American accent and he heard some of the things we were talking about and it turns out that he's American and so he wanted to talk and he had a Russia shirt on and um, we were talking about sort of like geopolitical concerns and we mentioned Russia and like World War One and stuff like that so he was like oh he's like I'm from I'm of Russian descent he's like but I served in the US military and now he's been quote unquote red pilled now he's extremely critical of you know the neocon American imperialist endeavors and so it was very interesting to hear him talk. And as as sorry, when you say red pills, what, fruit, what do
0: you mean exactly?
2: Oh, that he believes that he has seen that America is this imperialist okay, nightmare. Okay. That we so were not, only overseas for yeah, for like control of oil reserves and poppy reserves in Afghanistan and things like okay, that. You know, gotcha, and that gotcha. we're meddling in Iran for nefarious economic and also other geopolitical strategic terms and he has all he had, he was very well read but the thing that was overwhelming to me was how angry he was and he admitted that at the end he's like dude he's like he's like he's his family lives in like a conservative part of missouri and he said he can't even talk about these things that he's frustrated with because they'll just look at him like oh you're a fucking commie socialist or whatever and he's like he's like it hurts me he's like because i believed so much in serving my country and that we were doing the right thing to spread democracy and freedom to the world and he says but now i don't i don't think that's the case at all and he was angry and he was resentful and it hurt him and I think he was in that stage. He was in that point where he didn't really know what to do with that. He was experiencing coming out of the cave, as Jay says, that is traumatic. But I don't think he had reached that point where experiencing that trauma was transformative, yet in a productive sense, it was still angering him. And it was really touching to kind of to talk with this guy. And I think that's that's it, man. We don't know how to deal with fucking trauma, you know?
0: Damn. All right. Well, let's go on to the emails. Before we get to the emails, um, I just want to give a little shout out to uh, the patrons that have been supporting us on Wisecrack Plus. I haven't mentioned Wisecrack Plus in a while, but it's something that's still going strong. Uh, If you join, you can have access to our Discord server. You get early ad free videos. We even me, Austin and Alec actually did a podcast with uh, Slovenian philosopher Slavoj Žižek that is patron only. So you can check that out. Also, if you saw our recent Game of Thrones video, uh, one of our researchers, Matt Reikley, did a 50-page research document for that when he delved into all different interpretations of Norse mythology. (laughs) Yeah, Reikley's a sick fuck, but uh, he's amazing. Uh, So anyway, that's at WisecrackPlus.com. We'd love it if you joined us. But without further ado, let's go into the mailbag. So you guys can email us at movies at Wisecrack.co. But before we get to that, um, we had a voicemail... That was directed at Austin. and I'm not calling you out or anything, but this is from um, one of uh, one of our fans, Heidi, who has left multiple voicemails that have been really insightful. So I just want to make sure that um, her that her voice is heard. Uh, so she's talking about Gary V, which is this thing that we talked about in oh, yeah. uh, the fire podcast. Did, did you already hear this in one of the previous podcasts, or have you not heard this yet?
2: No, I haven't heard the the
0: the, the voice. OK, channel. so Heidi wanted to stick up for Gary Vee. So she said he's known for how hard he works, but he doesn't want to prescribe a pace for life and encourages people to find a pace that works best for them. He emphasized prioritizing people over money and talks about keeping community commitments, even if there is a better offer on the table. And I think the problem with hustle culture is when they lose sight of ethics, humanity and empathy. But I don't think they have to be mutually exclusive. So that's what Heidi said. And I, I, I just couldn't speak to that because I don't even know who Gary Vee is.
2: Yeah, so I guess the difference is, is, and we kind of tried to talk about this, that it's not about hustling that is bad. Like, I'm not going to shit on Kobe Bryant for working hard in practice to become the best basketball player. That's fucking amazing. I mean, I work hard. Like, I literally don't sleep. I'm reading from when I wake up in the morning, listening to podcasts. I'm writing constantly. So I do hustle. The issue is, is what are we hustling for? What's conditioning are hustling. And so I have actually heard Gary V. talk to somebody in the audience who was trying to come up with an idea. He's this young, the the, the guy was in in the audience was this young um, quote-unquote entrepreneur, which people use that term too much, but basically he was just a motivated young dude that was trying to develop some sort of startup. And he says, I have this idea, but I'm having a difficult time finding um, seed investors into my project. What do you recommend? And Gary literally told him uh, after he told him about what his marketing strategy was and his product was, Gary literally told him to stop being so wedded to his idea and find out what the market demanded. And that's my concern. It's not that Gary Vee is promoting this idea of working hard that I find to be problematic. It's what is motivating working hard. Is it to stifle individual pursuits in the service of the profit motive that is conditioned by the logic of the market Uh, In the debate with Zizek and Peterson this past week, this is one of the things that Zizek said. He said the problem is, is that the market logic equalizes people under this sort of false notion that it actually stimulates individual freedom. But it doesn't because what it ultimately does is it limits what is possible and what is not possible according to the dictates and the demands of the market. And that's the issue. It's just asking what is motivating or what is conditioning the hustle. And that's what I just want us to think critically through. So yeah, I actually – I used to like listen to a shitload of Gary Vee stuff because it kind of motivates me. The dude's fucking inspiring and he talks faster than I do, um, which it might be crazy to believe. I know sometimes I can get over-caffeinated. <laughs> but um, it's more about just really thinking critically about why we're motivated and why we're hustling. And if we're just simply subsuming ourselves to the demands of the profit motive, to price, to the demands of the market, then that's what I find problematic.
0: Cool. Well, I hope that answer was sufficient for you, Heidi, and call back anytime. Anyway. Yeah, please. So for emails, we got a couple more hashtag whans in which Ryan asked people to share your favorite movie cries. Oh, fuck yeah. So we got one from Max. <laughs> Max says, Matt Damon in The Martian when he loses his poop potatoes.
1: I remember that. That was sad. My- Matt Damon can cry, man. He-, he he has a couple. I feel like, th- doesn't he cry in Good Will Hunting too? I, I think crazy? someone
0: brought that up that I read last podcast. Yeah.
1: Yeah. He's a good. All car. right. So
0: this next one is from Jay. At the end of The Fisher King, Jack, played by Jeff Bridges, brings the holy grail to the comatose Perry, Robin Williams, whose mind has broken after the trauma of witnessing his wife's brutal killing at the hands of an unhinged gunman in a crowded restaurant.
1: Nice. Nice one. Good one. A great I movie haven't, if you haven't seen ha- it. I
0: haven't seen it. Uh, Austin, we've not asked you, do you have any favorite crying scenes?
2: Oh, Jesus, man. I have no fucking clue. I mean, you could just go with the class. I'm thinking that there's no crying in baseball scene, but that's different. That's not the cry. That's Tom Hanks that's a shitting on scene. someone for crying. We
1: want a scene that actually is uh, someone really crying, and you're like, you feel for them. See, you've offended Tom Cruise, Magnolia. Oh, I've said that one. Tom, that yep. was the first one I brought up.
2: Nice. Okay.
0: Yeah. Fuck yeah. Um,
2: yeah, that's a good one.
0: All right. Well, I don't want to put you on the spot, so you think about that, and we'll have you back next week, and you can tell us. All right, so Deal. this next one is from Jamal. He says, hey, Wisecrack, do you think Nolan, after making this film, will return to science fiction? Love the podcast Film Nerd as well as Film Student from Jamal.
1: After making what film?
0: I assume he's talking about what, what is he working on now? Is it the it, Howard Hughes biopic or is it something else?
1: I think he's making a, a weird, mysterious movie that no one knows about with Robert Patterson, I thought.
0: Oh, that's right.
1: Yeah, so, uh, and in my opinion, it, from what Robert Patterson said, which I think the quote was, like, totally fucking insane or bonkers, I don't know, but, like, uh, it, so- it sounds like it's going to be some weird sup- sci-fi element, but I don't know. That's just a guess. Hmm. I mean, what else? Yeah, would
0: be? I, I would imagine, if not, I mean, he's so eclectic. I mean, he's made war movies. He's made comic book it's movies. True. He's made science fiction movies. Um I wouldn't be surprised if he did science fiction. I can really do o- I can only guess. Um anyway, so this next one is from Ben from Perth,
2: Australia. Hey Jared, can can I just say something just cuz I want to lob this out there? Yeah, lob away. I I I feel like I got a little Nolan fatigue though. Mm. Like I kind of want to sit in Dunkirk for a little bit longer. You know? Well, I like, don't think this new
0: movie's coming out anytime soon.
2: Yeah. I'm in like ten years.
0: <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, it's probably going to come out before then. I know,
2: I know. It's just like he's 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 done some amazing work, but I mean, granted, maybe this is because I did watch literally his entire filmography for the video yeah. uh, that we produced. Yeah. But <laughs> but I feel like you know, it, there's just he's just ubiquitous. He's everywhere, and I get it, and it's great. But like sometimes it's good to just settle in things we're so f- we need like so fucking much content man like let's just meditate a little bit on what we have His brother just signed a 160
1: million dollar deal with fucking like amazon or somebody did you see that after oh, after wow.
0: westworld season two really yes man. dude yes <laughs> <laughs> it's uh, insane. i mean the both of them are enormously talented and i'll take anything that they make any day yeah so I, Marry, I don't man, i don't i worry. don't need the break i wouldn't even matter if he was if he did the Takashi Miike thing and did like three movies a year. I would be down for that. <laughs> uh, all right. Anyway, this one is from Ben from Perth, Australia. He said, "Wanted to get your folks' to take on my biggest problem with Interstellar. Do you think that in such a science-heavy film, is it reasonable for the protagonist to be bailed out by fifth-dimensional beings and a haunted bookcase?" Ultimately, I feel like the Mm -hmm. first half of the film is constructed in such a way that gives the audience an expectation that the universe is a a mechanistic and uncaring place. Then all of a sudden, it's bullshit deus ex machina. Does anyone share my opinion that the film would benefit from an alternate ending where Matt
1: Damon just kills everyone? (laughs) (laughs) I would love to watch that movie. But uh, but I mean, what do you mean it's a Deus Ex Machina? He, the, the, we still we, we don't know what the Deus Ex Machina is because they just made, they just told us what how we could comprehend it, you know. So well, we, it's we that, still don't it's know love. What to save them. It's
0: it's 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 basically love. It's that love allowed Coop to, or love allowed the six dimensional aliens to inform what they would show him mm-hmm. in the Tesseract, and that would allow him to communicate the message to do the math thing that ended up saving humanity. That's the deus ex machina. I don't know. I mean, I think he's what he's going for is saying that things like, I don't know, maybe if it's like, you know, gravity is an attractive force between two uh, bodies that have mass. Is love not if, – uh, if love is a similarly attractive force, can it not also be scientifically measured even if we don't have the scientific – Uh, literacy to be able to measure it right now. Now, I am not a scientist. This might sound like complete bullshit to those of you who are, but I think that's at least what he's going for.
1: Yeah, Mm. yeah. Are you talking about Christopher Nolan or the Yeah, yeah,
0: Christopher Nolan. No, Christopher Nolan.
1: Sorry. Yeah, no, no, you're totally right. But I mean, still, uh, Nolan did paint himself into a corner in terms of just you got to kind of throw your hands up at the end and just kind of accept what he's throwing at you. (laughs) You It's
0: not The Martian. It's not that just hard science and rigor and determination will save you. That movie's already been made.
1: Yeah.
2: I mean, if people are interested in this sort of thing, there is a guy, uh, his name is Bruce Lipton. He is a developmental biologist that does work on like epigenetics and how environmental factors actually impact our health more than genetic research has, like, presently articulated, and um, he kind of talks about this stuff. Like, he's kind of viewed as a quack by some people within the scientific community because he's all about, like, waves and aura and energy and stuff like that, but he tries to do it at a scientific level to talk about how these things, like love, aren't, opposed they're not just these like chemical reactions that are epiphenomenal and that we just get caught up in being sort of hallucinatory and crazy which is kind of what some biological reductionists say right the state of being in love is just like a state of mania or something like that um so bruce lipton if people are interested he has like talks on youtube and stuff like that that you can see and he's got books
0: so i want to do one more email this one's a fun one from jake He says, just wanted to chime in with some food for thought regarding your Interstellar podcast. I got this theory I like to force onto movies and TV where I look for links, either literal or subtextual, that allow characters to cross over into different films or shows. It's generally -hmm. generally flimsy at best, but can be a fun thing to look out for. Examples would be Mark Wahlberg and John C. Reilly's characters in The Perfect Storm actually being Dirk and Reed from Boogie Nights. Um, another one is Alan Ruckus' character in Speed is actually Cameron from Ferris Bueller's Day Off, and he's just trying to get out of his comfort zone, only to come face-to-face with with an exploding bus. With Interstellar, it's less literal, but I really like the contrast between McConaughey's characters in this film and his character in True Detective. They're arguably two of his most iconic roles, and both came out in 2014, Mm. but the two characters also present nearly polar opposite philosophies regarding the future of mankind. So uh, he says, I know these two works are only connected by the single actor, but I find the contrast of the roles fascinating, especially considering how important those characters have been for McConaughey and popular
2: culture in the last 10 years. Thoughts? Do you guys play? <laughs> Can we go? Let's go one step further and then let's include McConaughey from Beach Bum into this as oh, well. Oh, did
1: you see it? <laughs> I haven't oh, seen I it yet it. but i've
2: i've read about it and I've seen the trailer well Seems as
1: good. as the resident as the person that's the best at the six degrees of Kevin bacon amongst us i know <laughs> i think i feel like I would be good at this, and no, I don't see the connection they're completely different characters it's for fun bro <laughs> i i i my favorite of the I I think Grimace from the early Ronald McDonald commercials grew up to be Thanos from the New Avengers. <laughs> See, As, that's uh, fun to think
0: about. He was just
1: tired of his of his position on the sidelines and wanted to really take over. Anyway. Yeah, what is what is the event that
2: leads from I don't know whichever was first, let's say True Detective Matthew McConaughey to Interstellar or maybe vice versa like maybe Maybe Interstellar is first, and then True Detective is like some sort of cyclical future after he has become disillusioned by any sort of well, trust no, in science or love whatsoever. You're
0: forgetting the end of True Detective Season 1. He has He experiences this moment of grace, and he says that the light is winning. So then he becomes oh. the super optimistic guy that we see in Interstellar. So yes. it's actually a progress yes. towards optimism. And
1: that's crazy because he started as the stoner in Days and Confused, you know, and he grew up to be a scientist in Interstellar. Wait, wait, wait. It's you're like, talking wow. about sh-
0: – oh, no, no. Sorry. I was thinking of Fast Times at Richmond High. I was going to say you're thinking of Sean Penn. <laughs> no, no. no. Penn. So,
1: no, no.
2: There, there are two different timelines within the multiverse. Beach Bum is the grown-up from Dazed and Confused. But they they relate to each other through uh, the sort of bending of time space, and so they kind of impact. Got it. It's another.
1: multiverse theory. I see. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah,
3: yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm trying to think if I can think. Of, I mean, I'm, I'm tempted to say that uh, I don't know, like Ted from Bill and Ted becomes John Wick, but I really can't justify that in any sensible way.
1: I think Ted uh, from the movie Ted became that bear in the Edge with Sean Connery. You seen that?
0: No, but I thought you were going to say the bear and the revenant.
1: (laughs) Okay, sure. Let's go with that one instead. It's more known.
2: (laughs) I'm totally okay with Ted from Bill and Ted becoming John Wick. The princesses, when you know when they're like, give our love to the princesses and how they come back, that's who his wife is that we see in the flashbacks.
0: And I also like the idea that wild stallions never came to achieve world peace. So what is he going to do except become a hitman, of course?
2: (laughs) Well, right. But then once he retires for real and then he gets back together... With Bill, and then they have the third film that's coming out, where they actually do have to figure out uh, how they've impacted Universal history.
0: I'm I'm uh, very excited for that movie, by the way. Uh, all right, guys, we're gonna go ahead and wrap it up. Thank you guys so much for all the great voicemails and emails. Once again, it's two one three five three four eight eight zero seven or movies at wisecrack co. Before we go,
1: where can we Elfcut, find you guys on Elf
0: Oh, excuse me, 21elfgut07. Thank you. Where can we find you guys on the internet? Ryan. Well,
1: uh, also, I have I have just two very quick uh, live chat th- uh, oh, sure, uh, comments sure. I wanted to say. Pavement Sabbatical uh, gave a nice trivia. Said, the guy who did the choreography for Scott Pilgrim was Jackie Chan's second in command, Jared. Oh, that's that? awesome. P- pretty fucking cool little very tidbit cool. there. Um, And then uh, 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 Gentleman Trout, you know, we were talking about uh, how long movies and how they shouldn't be longer than you can pee during. And Gentleman Trout said the guy next to him complained that he got a little pee on him during Infinity War, but he didn't miss a minute. (laughs) 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 Thank you, Gentleman Trout. And lastly, but not leastly, Nicholas Amper said, I think the majority of Edgar Wright's movies are about growing up and fighting for what you love and I think that that's a nice apt uh, I think you can kind of take that and see it in all his movies thank you Nick very Mm -hmm. cool and Jared to answer your question you can find me on the internet at Ryan's Game Show and Ryan Shorts on YouTube and Facebook I just had two moms come over and fight to see who could be my best laundry folder and you just gotta go to the channel to see who won it's uh, not who you think (laughs)
0: living the dream man what about you Austin (laughs) (laughs)
1: Yeah,
2: you can hit me up on Twitter, Austin underscore Hayden. You can find me on Insta at A-U-S underscore H-A-Y. I do a philosophy podcast called Owls at Dawn. Um, We release weekly episodes. We actually just did a bonus episode on the NBA and basketball where we did like a deep dive of NBA culture and socioeconomic tensions, but also just the sweet sport of basketball, which my co-host and I both have played since we were kids. Um, and then I do another film podcast called I Dig This Movie, where we each talk about movies that myself and my director um, from London co-host have loved throughout the years, and he introduces me to films the, like Michael Bay's stuff, and I introduce him to like wanky art house French New Wakes. I love Owls
1: of Done.
0: Good shit.
2: Oh, I thanks, really
1: man. Great.
0: Yeah, me too. I, I'm a little bit behind, but I've listened to a, a good amount of them.
1: I pick and uh, choose. I just it's tough, I, I man. skip around, but yeah.
2: Yeah, yeah. That's what you got to do. It's tough because well, we got like eighty something episodes, and there's just too much content filtering into or flooding into people's minds. Man. Well, I gotta so tell you, as soon, and soon and choose, as I started
0: look. seeing part twos and part threes, I started to get nervous. Cause it's like, oh man, now I'll never catch up.
2: <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know what I'm saying? Those, those are, yeah, those are series though that are like individual packages. And if you want to invest yourself in them, go ahead. But if not, you can still skip around them. And even in them you can still glean a lot from them because we do recaps and we try to make sure that we connect the whole thing. So,
0: Rock on. Yeah. All right, guys, that's it
1: from use us. us. Use us how you please. <laughs> and you can find Jared on Wisecrack, the channel that's you're right. on right now.
0: <laughs> that's right. By the way, next week we will undoubtedly be doing Avengers Endgame, so I'm oh. sure everyone in the world is seeing it this weekend, so we'll see you there. All right. Peace out, guys.
1: Goodbye from
3: Hollywood, California!